With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome to the Diversity Remix, only provocative conversations at the intersection of business, politics, and culture. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. Today's episode, a 2020 year-end reflection special. In our final episode of the calendar year, we take a look at our three key personal takeaways from 2020. And in our Courage or Cringe segment, the Baseball Negro Leagues, the Detroit Pistons and Prison Reform, and Republican lawmakers get vaccinated. Does a retroactive designation solve segregation sins, or does it paper over a dark chapter in American history? Do the personal investments of sport team owners need to reflect the brand values of the league and the team, or should owners be afforded the privacy and separation from their financial investments? And should Republican lawmakers who were critical of COVID restrictions be trolled for hypocrisy when they take the COVID vaccine, or should they be applauded for promoting its safety? This and a number of other very interesting topics we will tackle today on this episode of TDR. Jesus Chavez, we've come to the end of 2020. Welcome. Welcome to the end of 2020. We're not quite there yet. So just based on the way this year has gone, we're, <laughs> we're about a week away. That's right. A little more than a week away. So um, I am holding my breath literally between now and then, hoping nothing else uh, happens. Uh, just, just based on the way this year has gone. This is our last um, episode of the calendar year. However, so we are going to take a break, um, you know, for Christmas and for the new year and try to you know, chill and be with our families and all that. So we will be wrapping up um, 2020 of TDR in any case today. Um, before we get started, there's really interesting. I'd love, I, I can't wait to hear your reflections. I can't wait to hear my reflections. Mm. <laughs> um, Great. But before we do, we want a, a little word from our sponsor, which again this week is our friends at sofisa.org. Sofisa.org, as I mentioned before, is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping homeless kids in the Southern California area and, of course, their, their families. Um, we talked last week uh, on the show in terms of the, the, the message was really about uh, getting the word out for fundraising. We obviously still need that, that support. So going to sofisa.org, and hitting the donate button. And for $99, you can sponsor any of these kids that we're serving for Christmas and get them all the goodies uh, that we talked about in, in last week's show, but basically help make a Christmas uh, wish for, for these kids come true. But I also wanted to plug something very special that's actually happening um, all this week and through January 1st. And that is that Sofisa has a Christmas house here in Los Angeles. For anybody listening in the LA area, and we know from our listenership that there's a lot of contingent in Los Angeles. 
Uh, Sophisa's Christmas House, which, by the way, you can go into Google Maps and just search Sophisa Christmas House, and it'll come up, a little pin on your Google Map, nice. and just drive there. I like it. But Sophisa's Christmas House is literally a winter wonderland that has snow machines and a nativity scene and all kinds of stuff. And you can drive up, and everything's safe and, you know, sterile and et cetera, and, you know, very well organized. Um, but you can have the kiddos experience a little bit of uh, L.A.-style snow. It's actually just uh, distilled water and dish soap and alcohol, but it looks like snow and it actually works really well. And, um, you know, interact, see the lights, um, the Sofisa Christmas house, like I said, just go into Google maps, type in Sofisa, S-O-F-E-S-A Christmas house, and you'll be directed to a pin that takes you right there. Uh, probably I'd say 25 minutes from anywhere in LA, maybe realistically, Jesus, pretty well centrally located without giving an address. Uh, you've been to the Sofisa Christmas house. I had a great time. Not only did I have a great time, my daughter, who's eight years old, had an awesome time. So she was, yeah. So I could, I could uh, attest as a, as a client of the experience of Sofisa house. It was a lot of fun. Uh, it's amazing when you're in LA, you get any kind of snow, even if it's fake snow, you get so excited. It's even a- I was excited. It's, it's just so, it's so quickly how you could just like, you know, convince yourself that is. You know, and I know it's a little embarrassing for those of you that may be listening to this from from the East Coast who are actually like knee deep in snow. <laughs> Our apologies because, uh, you know, we don't get it very often. So even if the fake one is a lot of fun to, to be involved. And, you know, please rest assured, obviously, everybody is uh, well masked and social distanced and all of that good stuff. But let the kiddos come out and experience a little bit of snow, a little bit of Christmas cheer at the Sofisa Christmas house. You can also take a little there's a step and repeat wall where you can take your picture poke your face to one of those little funny things and, you know, kind of be Santa and Mrs. Claus and that kind of thing. And obviously, if you're so moved, make a donation to Sofisa um, just simply by uh, clicking on one of the QR codes that'll be available at the location. So check out the Sofisa Christmas House again. Just open up Google Maps and type in, if you're in the LA area, type in Sofisa Christmas House, S-O-F-E-S-A, and you'll be directed right to it. And if you want any more information on Sofisa, Hit them up at S-O-F-E-S-A dot O-R-G. We love the work that they're doing and thank them very much for their sponsorship. Jesus, interesting episode. You know, we've done a couple of these ones where like, you know, we did sort of a hodgepodge episode. We've done a couple ones that were a little bit less formatted, less stringent, Mm -hmm. rigid. Um, And this is one of those. I mean, it's an end of year thing. I wanted to have a little bit of a conversation. I know you did too about... This year and the impact that it's had and just some key takeaways. So spend a little bit of time on that before we get into courage or cringe. Um, where would you like to start? Um, yeah, I guess on the three takeaways. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm happy to go if you want mm-hmm. me to. Mm-hmm. So as I was thinking about this. And um, I may interrupt you like after your first one. We'll see. Yeah, we'll no, see what happens. Fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's, it's actually better. Right? We'll maybe go back and forth. Okay. I think maybe it should be a better, better yeah. way to do it. Um, so it's interesting. As I was thinking about what are my what were my or are my three takeaways from this year, uh, the first one that I went with that I ended up decided that it was not going to be that, and I'll tell you why, uh, is one that I've sort of is almost like a mantra that I've used for a long time. Right, I'm a big believer in the statement that in chaos there is opportunity. Yes, and the first thing that I wanted to talk about as a takeaway was that. But the more I sort of started writing down my own thoughts about this, I actually thought it was like wrong to to have that as a as a takeaway for myself right mm. because i think in, in many ways it sort of it it takes away the struggle um that so many people have have dealt with this year how much they've been impacted it almost puts it almost puts it back on them that if they're somehow not in a better place than they were at the beginning of the year they just weren't innovative enough during oh, this, this very difficult yeah, time and i, I thought it was like a pretty shitty thing to say yeah, or to, to put that thought out there 
And while I strongly, strongly believe that um, that you know the, the the mother of invention is uh, is um, necessity, necessity, right? Necessity is the mother of invention. Thank you. Um, and a lot of it has happened this year where I could point to you directly even things that you and I've been involved with, and we're like, wow. By the way, this whole podcast is a great example of that. We we kind of talked about it. Would have never happened otherwise. It would have never happened. Like we talked about doing a podcast at the beginning of the year at CES. Remember us talking about this and we're like, Oh yeah, and, It'd be know, great. Pod- It'd be great. We'll invite, you know, our friends in the industry and we'll have a great conversation with them. And by the way, if we would have done that, it would have been like just like every other podcast out there that I can is hear a, myself talking about a it. Sounds of them, terrible. It sounds terrible. Like it's just like the same thing. Oh, you know, like what motivates you? What have you learned? What What's they, your secret inspiration? Exactly, How would you motivate right? a so, young entrepreneur? So all of that, right? So in many ways, this is this podcast is a direct result of, of being a little bit more innovative because of the need to actually talk about some of these issues that we thought were really interesting. So that's cool. So while I had that as my list, I actually took it off, but I wanted to say it because I thought it was important to bring it up in the context of why I didn't think it was something that, that so, I wanted to. So that was your away. first one, but you've now stricken it from the list. Exactly. Okay, so. Because that's the way I, I operate. I just want to, nice. I wanted more, <laughs> more you're that guy, to talk. You're the guy who writes things down on his to-do list that he's already done just so he can cross them exactly. off. Exactly. <laughs> I like that. I like that. That's All cool. right. So my first official, so here we go. So here's my first official mm-hmm. takeaway from 2020. And, and it is the following, which is everything can be political. Mm. That's in hard pause on that hard period, you know, press hard, hard as it push through the, the, the paper. Mm-hmm. Everything can be political. I feel like so much of what's happened this year. But by the way, you mean can or cannot? Cannot. Cannot. Can't be political. Got it. Okay. Uh, everything can't be political. Got right. It. Cannot. Meaning that we cannot look at every single issue that is happening, every single thing that we need to do, decide on through a political lens. And, you know, one of the things that I, that I think has happened this year, and so much of it we can look, we could point to the fact that we had, a, you know, a presidential election, a very contested one, as we still see now, uh, with, you know, probably one of the most, if not the most controversial uh, president that we've ever had, right, that just sparks emotion. So I, I, we can point to the why it happened, but the thing that as I, as I reflect back and I think about what the different issues that we were dealing with throughout the year, all of us were dealing with throughout the year. I feel like so much of it was constantly being seen through a political lens. And it's one thing to think about politicians doing this all the time. And I think to some extent, I expect that from them, right? All politicians sort of think about it first, like what does this mean for my own political career, for my party, which still comes back to my own political career. But what I thought was different is that this year, unlike many others, I felt like we were all doing that. Yeah. Don't you think that that's reinforced, though, by like how we communicate with one another? In other words, like it's so easy to just be lost in a kind of like an echo chamber. Right. Because if you're on. Yeah, there there is that. Right. And and it's funny because I actually have a version of that in in one of my takeaways. But you're right. Some of it can be facilitated by by how we talk about it. The fact that we, you know, get tied into these, these conversations where everyone sort of reinforces the same sort of point of view. But I still think that the calculus that many of us were using in terms of what we support what we're for or against many times was being driven by first a political decision rather whether it was the right common sense thing to do. Mm. And I even found myself doing that as much as I like to say, like, I'm pretty thoughtful and I like to like, think about these, these things, but you, you know, were, yeah, like, like the, there's it, cases where I, I could think about, look, and I think of all the different topics that had happened this year, right? Let's start with COVID, right? Masks. First of all, masks became such a political thing, mm-hmm. like across the board, vaccines, such a political thing, Right. The economy staying open or not open right. to what degree, and it, it really felt like it was 
first taking a political view of where yeah. does this put you in the spectrum <clears throat> and then decided well, rather than taking first a common sense view was like right. what does this do to people because i think well, that's kind of my point is like yeah. when everything's political common sense loses and more importantly people lose that's a super interesting point one of the things that i mean we live this kind of at least this mask um politiza- politization i remember um in the summer when we had to travel for a client engagement, like I remember getting some weird looks, like even like you're traveling and where are you going? And like, sure. you know, you guys are yeah, together yeah. and like, you know what I mean? And at that point we'd probably been in the same room for months. And so like, Hey, you know what, the way we're looking at it, we're almost in a bubble. Right. But, yeah. um, but I remember feeling like having to explain something that I didn't anticipate having to explain. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. that, and, and there was a, a little bit of a, like people, it was a little bit of an askance kind of like, what? You know what I mean? It, it just, well, and it surprised me, by like way, honestly. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, one of our our partners, right, they work with a lot, and, and we joke about this, but every time there was any situation like that, oh, you guys going to travel, or you guys are together, you just had to sort of create your own bubble, it's like, oh, you guys must be COVID deniers. Right, is in it was a joke, and I know it's a joke, but, but it's a, yeah, but it's it an eighty twenty. It's an eighty twenty. That's right. So yeah, it's one of those yeah. jokes where there's quite a bit of truth to that, and yeah. that's kind of the point that I'm making is yeah. like almost like having any kind of position or view like that immediately puts in this camp of being a COVID denier or you, you're, you're like you're a COVID believer and therefore you're like, I'm a hunker down. I yeah, don't go outside. Face shield, I don't gloves. do anything like it. Yeah. Right. It's like you eat through zoom and there's like a common sense portion there that, right. that sort of gets lost. Right. Even yeah. look, as much as I've been me, one of the more supportive side, I guess between supportive and not supportive of some of the things that have happened in California. Like the one that to me was like really ridiculous when we, when we started talking about closing down the beaches mm-hmm. and closing down these places of outdoor activities that literally there's people With the sun. Here, in the sun, outside, that by the way, people need to be healthier, need to be go outside, they need to walk, run. If Part of the thing that early on happened with COVID that I thought was really interesting is when you walked outside and go on a walk, how many people were outside walking all of a sudden that weren't doing that before? Yeah, like, kids that was on, a kids on bikes. Kids on bikes, right? Like all of a sudden the thing that we, like the moment kind of gets taken away, Yeah, people want to do it more. And and the extremes is what is what really bothered me. And I think part of it is is once again, going back and looking at this, I felt that too many times, all of us, and I'll start with myself, that I looked at things even too politically as the sort of the first threshold of of evaluating whether or not I, w- I would take a position one way or the, or the other. That's whatever interesting. The issue may so be. almost like the first part of the decision tree in terms of whatever the outcome is going to be, I have to look at it. Where do I, where does this rank from a political perspective? What, sure. What platform is this in? Who's for this? Who's against this? That kind of thing. And maybe part of it has to do, and I would be the first to admit it, was this obsession of that whatever we did as collective people also helped us get to a place where President Trump would not get reelected. Right. And as much as I wanted to like not admit that, and there's plenty of times where I'm like, well, does this actually end up helping or hurting? And maybe it's like, I'm not pushing people to be, to be hurt. I'm not pushing for the economy to close down. I don't want that. But at the same time, do I mind that President Trump may get impacted by that? I don't mind that. And some of that, see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. and it's, it's and it's hard to admit that, but it's yeah. like, but it's but it's helpful, of, yeah. But it's but it's actually pretty. It's courageous of you to even bring it up. I think that that you know, on the other side of the aisle, there was a sense that like this guy could friggin' cure cancer, and it'd be like, yeah, but you know what? You should have done it on Thursday. That's a better day than Friday, because Friday, you know, people are out, they're drinking. Nobody wants to think about cancer. So it's like, no matter what the guy does, well, you know what I mean? And so. On, so, that, on that topic, it's so interesting, right? Because when you bring that up, right, my point of view, and you, if you talk to anyone that is even slightly liberal, their point of view is like basically taking Trump for his, his own exact words. I could shoot someone down on, what, was it, what do you say, on Fifth Street on or whatever? On Fifth Avenue. On Fifth Avenue, and I will still, people will still be like, love me. Yeah. 
And there is not. And that, by the way, yeah. and both of those things are true, which is yeah. the funny thing about it. Yeah. Like once I can't do anything right and once I can't do anything wrong, no matter how extreme the two things are actually are. And this may, may or may not be related, but I still, I, I, I heard this in 2016 by an NPR reporter and I've mentioned it to you in the past. I don't think I've mentioned it on the podcast, but the most significant insight I ever got on the Trump presidency was from this NPR, a female reporter. Um, and she said that his supporters took him seriously and not literally and his detractors took him literally and not seriously. And it was like, that to me summed up the entire the entire thing. You know, when he said, yeah. I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue, his supporters were like, you really think we think that he's going to go kill somebody? Like, do you really think we think that? Kind of. You know what I mean? <laughs> kind of. Yeah. And I think, and I think that's, that's the disconnect, right? Yeah, it's that like, is, that but, is the disconnect. But anyway. But anyway um, so that was my first one. All right. So all right. I, I like that 100% on board. Very, very deep. I actually, I mean, I agree 100% with that. I think it's, and I think it's, um, again, my whole thing, you know, with Biden coming in is like, now hopefully some of these things can return to kind of where they've been um, in terms of being a bit drab and boring. And so we can kind of get back to a little bit of this sort of sense of normalcy. But I actually think that looking at decision making from something like common sense, something like, um, you know, points of connection, things we have in common, as opposed to, wait a minute, before I tell you what I think, let me check to see what I should believe. Right? right. Which is kind of what's happened over the last you know four years or so. I yeah. think that's a good thing. Yeah. So so I'm on board. What's number two? Uh, okay. Um, number two well, is... Well, I can give you my number one sure. if you want. Yeah, let's do that. Let's All right. So, so, so my number one, maybe a little bit out there, maybe not as clever as yours, but I think that for me, it's been interesting to experience a bit of a spiritual awakening that's come about in 2020 from all of the instability that's happened with respect to COVID. And I've noticed this mostly in my business conversations. And I've even seen it on some, in, to some degree on LinkedIn. But, you know, people, you know, uh, curious about questions that are go beyond business, the kind of eternal questions, questions of, you know, other things, you know, uh, spirituality, religion, mindfulness, uh, meditation, whatever you want to call it, but just a lot more focus on things that go well beyond the area of like what, where you're working or what you're doing brought about by the instability of COVID. I've had, I can't tell you, which kind of ties into my number two, but I can't tell you how many conversations I've had this year along these lines. I mean, with people like the randomest people that I would have yeah. never expected, you know, but, you know, having conversations about what's truly important and like, yeah, you know what? I thought that it was X or, you know, when I first got stuck in my house with my kids for two months, I thought it was horrible. Then I realized like, oh my gosh, what have I been missing? Like this sort of awakening that, that sort of happened. And again, I don't want to trivialize or minimize the, the, the things that have happened to people that have been damaging and, and, and bad because there has been a lot of that too. But the sort of silver lining about this, when you're shaken to the core, right? right. And when you don't know which way is up, when you don't know what's coming next, this idea of kind of turning to things that go beyond the everyday, beyond the mundane and turn to things of the eternal, I've seen that. And I think that that's a good thing. I think that that, you know, certainly for me, it's been yeah. a really interesting and, thing to watch. But that awakening that you're referring to, you kind of see it if I heard you correctly, you kind of see it twofold. One is the, to some extent, the insecurity, the fear sort of created in this time, which yeah. also caused people to sort of question sort of what they value was most important. That and the sort of the re, um, 
like reconnecting with maybe parts of their life yes. that they have been ignoring, yes. frankly, because of just you know moving too quickly, et cetera. And, and that's exactly it. Because I mean, with the reality of it is, is we have a life of I mean, a lot of you know distraction and kind of moving from A to B, sure. and you know you could even say in some cases dissipation, but we're very moving very very quickly and when you're forced to kind of stop and it is a force we were forced in yeah, march to stop for sure for sure you know um but one of those uh benefits i've seen has been this kind of like renaissance of people to really look at things that are important and do a self-assessment and you know draw themselves closer to things kind of on their whatever their spiritual walk is wherever they are in their spiritual walk kind of take that next step and I've definitely seen that. I think it's been a positive thing. I've been involved in a lot of conversations with people throughout the year. And that's one big key takeaway was a giant sort of like, I think of, like, hey, 80s movies reference, you know, Ghostbusters, like a psychic shock to the system, right? Where like these, yeah. ha- this happens every era, every epoch, right? Where there's something that happens that just draws people kind of out of their sort of shell of the mundane nine to five kind of thing and focuses them on something bigger. I think I saw that. That's great. Look, and if and if that's the sort of part of the the, you know the the aftershock, the after effect of of twenty twenty, um, that can be sustained. I think that's a really good thing. Well, that's my big question with all this stuff is like, yeah. what's going to be sustained? What's going to go away? Come January, February, whatever it is. Now the the new kind of uh, you know line in the sand seems to be spring of next year. Like right. spring, things change at some sure. point. So we'll see. What's your number two? Um, number two is, is somewhat related to the first one, which is uh, we just need more empathy. I mean, that's the other kind of big takeaway at every level, frankly. Um, and I think part of it starts with, you know, how we view each other. Um, I see it as, look, we can stop viewing each other in binary terms. Mm-hmm. By the way, for those of you that I think most people you know that, that reference, but binary, when you talk about zeros and ones, right? It's either one thing or the other. Meaning that we're not necessarily defined by our political leanings, right? And, and stop seeing each other as caricatures of who we actually are. And that's actually part of the thing that maybe in these conversations that we've had, and I've talked about this, I think, a number of times for people that have listened to this, you know, previous episodes, in terms of how much I've personally have, frankly, grown in my understanding better of the other side, of not thinking about, especially folks that are, that are, that are you know, in the Republican Party or that support President Trump, which is probably the hardest one to really try to parse out because it's so easy to put folks in just one, like, easy-to-tell bucket. Like, oh, these are the And bad to guys. identify him with him. Right, yeah. exactly, right? I'd yeah. be like, oh, yeah, I would never be that. Yeah. Like, I you know, want no part of that. And I think that's part of the problem, you know, of, of not having empathy. That, I think that's, that's part of the problem that if you actually have more empathy, you can kind of, you can actually see past some of those easy-to- uh, categorize, uh, uh, you know, elements of, yeah. of people that actually helps you get, you know, b- you know get more connection. I mean, t- to me, the thing that was really interesting is that we're we're sitting here a day removed, maybe from yeah, I think it was a day removed from from Congress just passed the relief bill. Their sec, I think their second relief bill, right? Of which they're including in there six hundred dollars per person. Mm-hmm. Uh, f- you know, for especially for those that have been actually very impacted by COVID, and it's the fact that it's such a, a fight at th- this day and age for six hundred dollars, mm-hmm. like with all of the trillions, literally trillions of dollars that have been put back into the economy, try to turn the, the, the economy back back around, and that. You know, there is still a fight at that level. It's just like, at, at what point do you say, hey, let's pause, going back to my first one, of just viewing this from a pure political lens. And from a, like, if you are someone this day and age, no matter where you live, yeah, and you haven't been working, your business got maybe destroyed because of COVID, you've been you know, out of work for months and months, and you're going to get 600 bucks. And we saw somehow, I mean, in some ways, I guess, celebrating because at least there's something. But in the other hand, it's like so ridiculous to me that that's... That's how low the the, the, bar the bar is to actually help people, like starting with people. 
we focus so much about programs, about the bigger things, investments, but what about just individual people? And I think part of it is just a lack of empathy that we have with each other. I think it is. But I think that, so I, I mean, I, I agree with you on that, but I think that the, the way that we operate, you know, again, going back to social platforms, going back to even the sort of the tentacles of government, it's hard to see the person. Yeah. It's hard to see the person. So it's like you it see is. you see groups, you see segments, you see supporters of X and antagonists of X and you see, you know, whatever, protesters or you see Trumpers or however it is. It's so we, we, I think that all of the things that we have around us reinforce this idea of group mentality. And that's fine for some things, but to get to know people, it's really bad because like people right. are not these kind of big groups, you know what I mean? Like somebody belongs to, I don't know, AARP or some other organization to say like, oh, you're an aarp -er. Like what the, no, 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 you're Bill or right. whoever you are, right? So, and even that argument about the actual amount to be given to people, like getting to 600 bucks, like if it's between 1200 or zero, let's say those are the two extremes. Right. This is not about Mitch McConnell versus Nancy Pelosi, right? Like it's, this is about, the individuals that get impacted and what it means to their personal life, the difference of actually having enough to maybe cover their rent or not even enough to basically be, be halfway there, right? Uh, and I think that's, to your point, like that gets completely lost in this conversation. And it's, and it's, it's, it's sad. I think it's sad. And I think part of it is like, you know, I'm one that personally, I've, I've, I've shared this before with people that work with me directly, but it's one that I, you know, I felt for a long time that I struggle with empathy sometimes. Mm. And especially because I get very like focused on things and 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 how I how I view things, um, but I've always tried to like get people to work with me that are around me that could be the ones that are like hey by the way you know that one time when you responded that way maybe not the best way to to address it and I've always been pretty open to actually hearing that right I think I've gotten significantly better by the way I think becoming a father of a daughter has completely changed my perspective and how 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 much empathy I actually have, um, which has been a really good thing for me but. I just feel like as a society, man, we, we need more of that. And that's, I feel like that wasn't, there wasn't enough of that with all, look, when I think about what happened post 9-11, like, I feel like everyone was like, was in it together. Like, this is us literally against the world. Yeah. Like, like we're all in it. It didn't feel that way. We're all in it together. We're going to figure it out. No, we're gonna, but it like, didn't feel that way with COVID. And with COVID, maybe like the first week, maybe, maybe like closest. March. But it just so quickly, you know, just, just, yeah, yeah, went down the drain. And I think it's it's coming combination of the first one, everything being political, and then just this overall just lack of empathy. That I, like I just that. I can't understand everything why, why that be, was. everything being political, spiritual awakening, and lack of empathy. Okay, here's my number two. Mm -hmm. My number two. And this is definitely more in the mundane category. We've now we're now leaving the esoteric and entering the realm of reality. Okay, so a huge rise in connectivity, and frankly, the the sort of advent of the LinkedIn age. That's what I sort of noticed this year. I think LinkedIn in 2020 became, I haven't seen the stats. Like I really try to research this, but they're, they're pretty tight about it. Um, I think LinkedIn became kind of like business porn in 2020. I think that if you had a Chrome, t a Chrome browser open, you had your email, you had LinkedIn, you had whatever your news thing is, but it was always open. Like the amount of interactivity and stuff going on on LinkedIn was extraordinary oh, yeah. in 2020. Yeah. And I think that, um, that that's, you know, 
interesting for a number of different reasons. I mean, you kind of look at the factors, right? People, a lot of people being downsized, looking for gigs, sure. a lot of people launching new things, a lot of people innovating and messaging the innovations, a lot of people looking for things and going, how do I get to the next thing? So there was just all of this kind of activity and LinkedIn became this kind of like lifeboat of sort of activity. At least that's what I noticed. I've never in my career, and I was a super early adopter of LinkedIn, and I'm like power user, top 1% on LinkedIn, okay? Like I've got you, the whole- You are, yeah. I've got the gold, no, they sent me the thing, the gold star, whatever it is. <laughs> like I'm power, power user on LinkedIn. I have never been more active on that platform than I was this year and never saw as much activity as I did this year. And I think, you know, good or good and bad, but that's one of the key takeaways that I saw is this sort of dramatic rise of that platform and connectivity in general of business people trying to get together to replace a lot of the things that we lost in terms of business development and communication and everything else. That's, that's an interesting one. Oh, very good. Not, I, as, not as fun to talk about. But. No, it's, I mean, uh, yeah, you're right though. I mean, I, I hadn't thought about it, but you're entirely right. I think myself, I'm definitely not a power user for LinkedIn. Um, I'm on there, but not new to the degree that, that I think a lot of people are. But I definitely agree with with your point there. My last one, and it's sort of mm -hmm. thematic, sort of tied to this, um, is really more. Um, you know, the way I phrase it was as following, was as following, which is as a community, I feel like we need to just take the red pill hmm. right now. That's a reference. Well, why not the blue pill? The, we got we got to do the red pill, right? So, so <laughs> I agree with you, by the way. Take the uh, red so, pill. just for those that may not know the reference, right, as it relates to the movie Matrix, right? There's this famous scene. In the Matrix, where Morpheus, who's the guy who's basically there to liberate the mind of Neo, who's played given, by the great Lawrence Fishburne, Lawrence Fishburne, that's right, um, asked Neo if he wants to take the red pill, the red pill or the blue pill, because the only way for him to understand what the Matrix is, yes, he has to like show, he has to see it. And the red pill allows him to see things as they are. The blue pill just allows him to just continue seeing things, you know, the, the way that he's has this entire time. And, and what I mean by that, I feel like we've talked a lot this year about the impact that social platforms have had in terms of um, shaping how we think about things, mm -hmm. the echo chambers, all of the negative impact that social impact platforms have had in terms of, of, of driving our, our mindset and the things that we engage with. But, you know, as, I, as, I, as I'm reflecting in 2020, and as I think about the social platforms, you know, the, the way that I will frame those actually is as I think of them as being the disease not, or being the symptom, not the disease. And the reason I say that is because social platforms are nothing more than a reflection of the things that actually engage us, right? Most of these platforms, like the real Facebook, Instagram, all these platforms really operate under a dynamic of driving engagement mm -hmm. and then time on the platform. I agree with that, but let me just qualify one quick thing. There's a lot of things that engage us at our basis levels, right? So as a, from a nutritional standpoint, sugar engages us. Sure. Right. Um, in, you know, other scenarios, maybe, you know, uh, things that are sexual in nature engage us. Yep. Right. So not because necessarily things are engaging or they should, should it be something that we go, oh, that's just, a, it's just who we are. It's just human nature. Right. And I think we have a, a habit of doing that. We're like, well, this is what works. Like, I don't know. And it's like, yeah, I think that's, well, that's, that's kind of what I, what I was getting at. Right. Which is if they're a reflection of things that engage us. Right. And those things are hate, anger, conspiracies you know, whatever may be the case, like at some point as individuals, and I'm talking about adults, not kids, right? I think they're, they're put them in a very different category. Like you almost got to take that, that, that pause and be like, wait a minute, like I'm actually feeding into this, going down this rabbit hole. Like sure. I could, and, and I've seen it, like YouTube's a great example of that. Like I'll, I'll, I'll be the first to confess. Like there's a lot of stuff that I've, <laughs> I've randomly watched stuff on YouTube. And you think it's random. 
uh, well, no, I'm sorry. Random in terms of the things that I start with, right? And 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 look at things for different, very different kind of topics. But yeah. I definitely see what gets served to me is a direct result of things that I'm actually looking at. Now, there is plenty of times where I'm like, how did that happen? Like, how did I get to this video? By the way, the best example of that is actually Facebook videos, where I'll, I'll go into watch one video, three videos later is like. Wait, this is like someone getting like beat up in the street. Like, how did it? Like, let me go back to the previous two. How did it get me to this point that quickly? But if we don't have that moment of taking the red pill and understanding, like, hey, this is what is actually happening here, yeah. and pull ourselves out of it, like, it's just, I feel like so much of it is put on the the social platform being the bad guy here. Which, by the way, I'm not saying that they're, they're a good well, player, but as individuals, I think that we have to also take a lot more responsibility we for, take, for what for what the things that we consume. And I'm a big believer in even personal on the responsibility. on the whole thing about misinformation. Right, looking at the sources, like how many times, like I've forced, frankly, from you saying it all the time. Especially when I'm seeing seeing a conservative headline, I'm like, okay, let me actually read this to see what's actually there. I do the same thing with the liberal headlines. But but yeah, but so many times I'm like, oh, now that I read it versus the headline, I was like, okay, these things are not matching up. And and I think there's a certain level of of responsibility that we have to take as as individuals that to me is actually is a takeaway from 2020. Yeah, that's... Don't disagree. I mean, look, personal responsibility is definitely a principle um, that I agree with, and I think we need a lot more of it. I think the thing with the platforms is not so much that they're not guilty of it. I just think that the that the way that they're structured and the business models that support them are ones that enable and reward the stuff that we're complaining against. And until you change that, I don't know how you fix it. Sure. Yeah, but you can say that about all media, right? The, the television model, yeah. But if I watch, was, if I watch, the, but if I watch Amazing Race on Hulu, I'm not going to end up in a rabbit hole watching a fist fight. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? It's like it's a different yeah, thing. Yeah, 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 for sure, thing. for sure. You know? And and right, so yeah, that's why I go with with the red pill. Like if you don't start to understand that that's actually what's happening, and see it for what it actually is, I think you, then you're very prone to, to you know get pulled down these different rabbit holes. All right, I like that one. So all right, my last one, three is uh, again not in the elegant, beautiful category, but I think definitely something that I thought was a, a key takeaway, and it's certainly apropos for business people. And that was the massive visibility that 2020 created in terms of the inefficiencies of the way that we traditionally did business. Now, again, I look at this and go, does it matter? Are we going to go back to the way we did it anyway? I think about, you know, I spent my career in business development, essentially, right? I would get on an airplane to go fly for the right meeting. You know what I mean? I'm like traveling 3,000 miles, billing hotels and eating, you know, room service and taking my team out to events. And who the hell knows how much money that costs, right? Over the years for that one meeting. And now I can have four meetings in one hour with like all the right decision makers. Now I realize, I'm not naive enough to realize, to, to not know that this only works so long as everyone is abiding by the same rules. The moment that my competitor starts having meetings in person and taking people out to nice dinners, it's over, right? Right. But the reality of it is, is it really just highlighted the absolutely extraordinary inefficiency of the way that business, especially business development, growing businesses, relationships, major account management, whatever you want to call it, right? How that was, my entire career looks like a prehistoric, like stone cut rock wheel being rolled down the street relative to what we learned this year in in terms of that. Uh, But but I think part of it, uh, it's it's so funny that you bring that up because I I think it's, I definitely seen this as well. But I think a big part of it also has to do with the role that technology played in bridging that gap, right? Because what's interesting is that the two modalities that we had historically or before this year was you could do a phone call, conference call, 
or you could do an in-person meeting. Well, there well, was always video. There was video, there but was it was video. exotic. No one used it. It was exotic and weird. No one used it, yeah. right? Like I, I used a lot of video calls for, in the case where we were in, in the previous company, where I had part of my team in another country. It was all phones. And and there you would, you, we would do some video, but even then it wasn't that often. It was horrible. It was like, it wasn't it was that horrible. great. What, what, I, what I've found really interesting, especially in some of like most recent conversations, is that as I've had calls, anytime I have... A, a meeting that it's only a phone call. It's weird. It's the weirdest thing ever. It's so inefficient. I can hear someone like literally doing something else as they're talking to me. I can't read the facial expression to see whether or not what I'm saying is resonating. I mean, it's amazing how quickly on a dime it turned and also in a whole new modality of how we communicate that facilitates not having to be there in person and that bridges the gap fairly well. And I, I know there's Zoom fatigue and all that, but, but it does a pretty good job with that, how quickly that actually happened. And- hundred percent. And I wonder about what of that stays, because again, the genie in the bottle is the moment that your chief competitor goes like, yeah, I'm cool. I got the vaccine. We all got the vaccine. Right. Well, we're going to take everybody on a cruise ship or go to something to well, buy people, I, 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 you know, the, sunglasses. Yeah. Then you're, it's dead. Well, it's dead. I think, I think the in-person conversation, I mean, we're still very, as people, we're very social people. We like to be with each other. I think that part We'll come back to some to some degree. What I what I think won't change as much is going back to pure audio calls. I think that the th- default will be video. The, you the think? default will be video, and anything that is, that is that is um, you know where you're remote. Yeah, I think the default will Google, be video. Google has certainly already like created the the the, the product to do that, which is the, the default calendar entry that comes with the Google Meet. Thing. Sure, we don't use Zoom a lot, you and I, but like uh, yeah, I don't, we're kind of haters. With yeah, Zoom, we're haters of Zoom. We don't we'll want to talk on. about that. But, sponsors. But, but that's yeah exactly <laughs> but that's uh that's actually really interesting no and and i do wonder what goes back i hope it doesn't because i do think that a lot of these inefficiencies it kind of reminds me of the advertising industry when the internet hit it was like we the internet revealed a lot of what the sort of fluff was in the advertising industry and the budgets and the inflation and the nonsense because it kind of allowed us to cut right through the things that actually worked and I think this has done the same thing, again, especially with respect to business development, but even operational things, even like, you know, making a project go from A to Z. There was a lot of inefficiency in that as well. And mm-hmm. I think, I hope that some of that doesn't go back. I'm not sure. But yeah. I, I got, that's in any case, one. massive visibility of yeah, those inefficiencies. Okay. Is that, that's it? That's three it. Three and three? Those are, those are our top three. All right. Well, that works, I, I guess. Um, and, uh, you know, definitely learned quite a bit on in that little exchange. So, um, all right. Well, now we can move on to, uh, to let's, our- Let's do our fun, courage, or cringe. We've got three good ones. Quick I think uh, rapid someone, fire. Yeah, we'll, do, so we'll, we'll go quick, but um, these are, I think, good ones. Uh, so the first one is, um, you know, Major League Baseball announced last Wednesday that it was correcting what they considered correcting a long time oversight in the game's history by officially elevating the Negro Leagues from the 1920s through 1948 to Major League status. Right. Mm-hmm. So this is a move that both grants uh, recognition of some of the baseball pioneers and also, which is a, a really interesting point, it immediately actually rewrites the record books. The re- right? Yeah. So because, I think that's actually a pretty interesting point. Yeah. Um, so there was a, roughly around 3,400 black and Latino players who were barred from joining the surrogate in, uh, national and American leagues that would basically now be recognized as major leaguer, leaguers. 
Now, this is, of course, before, so we think about that time period, uh, 1920, 1948. It was actually 1947 that Jackie, Jackie Robinson broke the baseball color barrier right. for the Brooklyn Dodgers um, and became uh, the first uh, you know, uh, African-American player to play in the National Leagues, right? Um, from, and this is a, as a quote from the MLB commissioner, Rob Manf- Manfred. Uh, all of us who love baseball have long known that the Negro Leagues produce many of our game's best players. Yeah. Uh, innovations and triumphs against backdrop of, of injustice, right? So there's obviously recognition of a lot of injustice going on there and in the move to try to, you know, correct that. Uh, the, once again, I think to me, one of the, the interesting things, of course, that that move. And the second is, is the, the the fact that they're actually going through this process, review process, with the, sport, with the LES Sports Bureau to actually determine the full scope of what this designation now means in terms of the ramifications on on the, all the records and, and the different stats that individual players have. As an example, and I love this example they brought up. So Ted Williams, you know, has for eight decades been recognized as the last man to hit uh, 400, 400 in Major League, or over 400 in Major League Baseball, right? However, uh, Josh, Josh Gibson, which is the Hall of Fame catcher known for his time with the Homestead Grays, hit 441 in 1943, according to the Sam Heads Negro League database, so that will make him not only be... That's uh, a hell of a batting average, by the way. It's better <laughs> yeah, it than is. us on Courage or Cringe. That, that is. That's very good. Uh, so that means that not only would he top Williams, Ted Williams, yeah. right, who, who batted a 406 in 1941 for the, with the Red Sox, but also surpassed Hugh Duffy's 440 for the 1894 Boston Bean Eaters as best ever. By the way, should we... That's amazing. As another name that should be, have been Bean a, Eaters. I mean, I feel like we should... That should be its own Courage or Cringe. Uh, let's get, I, I'm, I'm a little bit triggered. I don't know what they're... I don't know what, what, kind, of, what kind of beans are eating. <laughs> what kind of beans? It depends on the beans, I guess. Pinto, beans. black. <laughs> exactly, exactly. What are we talking about? Lima? So, um, but anyway, so that's that's the, you know, big big news coming from Major League Baseball. Charlie, when you when you heard that, you know, what were some thoughts? Well, so for, my, my first thought was, yeah, like, right. you know... Yeah, probably really great athletes for their time and place doing the exact same sport as the other people down the block um, for a lot of reasons that, you know, in today in 2020 don't make a lot of sense um, and probably never. Did it make, yeah, they make it sense they never make any sense at right. all. But I'm saying, you know, we look at them now and it just seems like very archaic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I'm 100 percent in favor of doing it. And, you know, to the extent that the that MLB has a recognition of professional teams that played the sport throughout the founding of MLB, we should, of course, recognize these teams. Now, here comes the detective out for me, which is why now? Like, what is this about? Mm-hmm. And the nearest I could find was, well, it's the 100th anniversary of the yeah. Negro Leagues. Right. So yeah. we decided to wait 100 years. 100 years <laughs> To do this now. And it just, that rings a little hollow. I think it has a lot more to do with George Floyd and probably just a bunch of things that got programmed in in the summer of things we want to do before 2020 is over and this is one. Okay, fine. Um, So I do have a question about that. And, you know, look, you're going to take your PR hit one way or the other, right? So you don't do it, you take a PR hit, you do do it, then people have questions. I think ultimately it is a courage I think it's something that is good, something that should have been done, you know, probably a while ago. I do think that on a practical level, you have to actually like, I'm very interested in understanding how they're going to calculate these statistics because the number of games they played, the fact that there, some games were exhibition, other games were real games, the conditions under which they played, like all those things were different. So you're comparing in some cases, apples and oranges. You're talking about equipment, Equipment, level of fields, everything. Yeah. So, so, so that part is curious but um you know on the whole i think it it's a it's a great recognition 
I don't buy for a second that it's the hundred anniversary. I think that part's a little cringy. But if I had to give a, a you know a, a call right now, I'd I'd call it courageous. I think it's great. All right, um, I go with courageous as well. Right. I mean, I think the move, while long, long overdue, it's the right move. The the part that I and I agree with you. I mean, for the you know part of the problem in this case is they took so long to do this. Then it gets to a point that no matter when you do it, it's going to be you're going to get a hit for for taking it long anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Um, th- th- that it took a hundred years, <laughs> it is it's a little sad to be honest. But the part that I'm actually giving them maybe more courage, um, assignation in terms of the move, mm-hmm. is in trying to figure out. Like, how does this actually change the record books, right? And especially in the context of a league that is very traditional. Because you're right? going to you undo a lot, a lot of, of stuff. Purists. Yeah, you have a lot of purists. So well, I'm, we know very curious, I'm very curious to see what is going to be the fallout of this move, especially as I start to take down potentially folks like Ted Williams. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people are a huge fan of his and, and see him at the highest level. And to not have this other player who may be in different conditions, yeah. different kind of fields, different competition. You can make all these arguments, right? Have and a better I, and I, average. And I'm not a base. And by the way, and all that mm-hmm. could be like better competition. I'm not even saying that they're necessarily like worse competition. It could have been better. Like some of those players, the players, these guys weren't allowed to play. So you, you don't really ever going to yeah. know. And I'm not a baseball like aficionado in any way. But you think about the records that... Mickey Mantle and Babe Ruth and Cy Young and all these guys sure. set. And to think, well, maybe there's a new top pitcher or somebody who's got a best ERA or best batting average or whatever. And maybe you never heard of them. And like, it is what it is. Like that to me is going to be very interesting to figure out. I I think Um, it it is, but, but it's a wreck. It's a, I think a a course correction that is needed. And I do, I, this is where I do give them a lot of courage for even trying to do this. I think the, how they do it and what the outcome is, is going to be the one that I'm sure we're going to be reading about it in, in the coming months. As that stuff you know, started to get finalized, but that's why to me I put them more encouraged. Even though I agree with you, like, look, the fact that it took a hundred years—that's crazy. Uh, but I'm glad they're doing it. it. There's definitely, you know, PR pressure. There's definitely pressure from the summer and everything happened around George Floyd and how all the various leagues responded to the moment. And you know, maybe that's what it needed to happen in order for them to finally make this move and recognize the achievement and work that all these, this, you know, 3,400 players, Black Latino players, had and their contribution to the game. By the way, did you find out how many of the 3,400 were Latino? Uh, I did not know. No, no. Yeah. It's pretty, I mean, I got to imagine it's a pretty small group. It had to be a pretty small from the time they were playing. Yeah. I would say, I would assume the majority would be black players. Which is interesting too, because now like a huge contingent of MLB are actually black Latinos, Afro Latinos. Right. You know what I mean? It's like the, the, the the Negro leagues were American blacks for the most part playing. Now the MLB has a big contingent of Afro Latinos. You know, basically black well, Latinos. Look, part of the longer term play for MLB is, is that, you know, like they have to find ways to make the game much more interesting to even African Americans in general, right? There's been such a major drop off there. Since the 60s. Yeah, since the yep. 60s, right? And of course, with football, with basketball across the board, I mean, the best athletes just are not playing baseball. Yeah, that's a true, true, true statement. Okay, so right, cool. Negro Leagues, we're batting a thousand. Speaking of yeah, baseball, we, we should just stop now. I think, I think we're, <laughs> I think we're good. Let's sign off and go uh, home. All right. So this this other story was actually really interesting, a little bit related here. All right, uh, you're going to go first on this one, then. Uh, okay, uh, which is there is a, a prison reform activist, uh, or actually a nonprofit called Worth Rises. Um, they Worth took Rising, a, right? Worth Rises is what it's called. Oh, Rises? Yeah. Oh, I got it wrong. Um, right, so Worth Rises. Yeah. Worth Rises took out a full page ad calling for the NBA to oust Piston in owner. In the New York Times. 
Uh, right? Yeah, I think it was. I think you're right. Or yeah, it was in the New York Times. Yeah, yeah, correct. New York Times. Yeah. Uh, uh, they took out an ad uh, calling for the NBA to oust Piston owner Tom Gores, right? Now, in terms of why they said that, right, is because uh, the private equity firm that Tom Gores owns, which is called Planum Equity, mm-hmm. uh, they bought Securus Technologies in 2017. Now, Securus helps set the phone call rates for jailed inmates to make phone calls for their families, right? So according to the site from the nonprofit, they said, Gore owns the predatory, the predatory prison telecom corporation Securus, which is infamous for charging families egregious rates to connect with loved ones behind bars. His greed has broken up families and traumatized children who are disproportionately black and brown due to racist policing and policies. Mm-hmm. If Gore cannot meet his responsibility to the public, and Detroit or specifically the NBA must step in, right? So... To add to this, uh, there was a 2015 study uh, that was done by a collection of nonprofits that found that one in three families go into debt staying in touch with an inmate. Uh, and most of those are women of color. Uh, women of color. Uh, and in response to this, to, to, that, to that post and, and this issue, um, Mark Barnhill, who's a partner at Planum Equity, which is once again the firm that, uh, jo- that, that Gores owns. And, uh, and it's is, a big firm. Yeah. Said the company is also working to fix the issue. He said Gores is a direct is directing any personal profit from Circus to reform efforts in this uh, in this area. He was not able to provide the amount. Um, Barnhill, resp- <laughs> you know, small Bar- detail. Yeah, exactly. Barnhill also responded to Sunday's newspaper advertising by saying, "Our commitment to the community and to social justice is visible every day." Citing some of the company's work on numerous Detroit area programs and nonprofits. Uh, Sickers is also committed to shouldering the heavy lifting necessary to transform the company and the industry, he said. So, you know, he comes out, makes some statements about, you know, that the, that the organization itself is trying to support the community. Um, by the way, Sickers did announce in January 2020 through a press release that they had lowered the average cost mm-hmm. of phone calls by 30% over the past three years. Uh, it also said it would decrease in an additional 15% over the next three years. It also pledged to donate $3 million to efforts aimed at reducing uh, 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 recidivism. Recidivism, Mm -hmm. that word. Um, But yeah, so look, this is a case where the individual investment of an owner um, is being something that's being called out by by some of these nonprofit uh, activists as not being in line to the position that the NBA specifically has uh, relating to Black Lives Matter. And a lot of the work that... In fact, that was actually in the newspaper ad that they took out. It was like... So you think or you say Black Lives Matter? What right. do you have to say about this? Exactly right. So it it was I think a very interesting uh, position to to take. So. Okay. So where do you land? Um. And by the way, where what we're, we're courage or cringing is worth rises calling for this guy to divest of the team. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, we we are calling for that. I think in this case. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a really tricky one. I'm going to suggest this topic, but it's a, it's a really tricky one because on the one hand, I could understand the the, the importance of actually being able to separate uh, the, the the investments that an individual has. Mm-hmm. Because the thing here, look, I think the thing that makes it maybe a little bit more directly tied is the fact that his equity firm owns, um, uh, basically full on owns that, that, that company as opposed to having an investment in the company, which is a little bit different, right? Um, part of the question for me is that becomes like where where do you, where do you draw the line, mm-hmm. right? Do you draw the line on okay if you fully if you have a direct tie to fully owning a business that is specifically going after the interest of black and brown communities, and then on the other hand saying that you're all for Black Lives Matter, then there seems to be a major yeah. disconnect in your position, right? What do you actually support? I can understand that, and I think from that position alone, I would say this is more courage to me than than cringe, right? Because I do think there's such a direct line of correlation between those two things being at, at odds with each other. Um, 
on the other hand, I do. Well, the thing that concerns me is I don't understand. And the reality is like, look, it's kind of like the moment you start, it's like a domino effect. The moment you hit one domino, you hit the other one, it comes down the road. It's at what point do you make, like, where do you make that distinction, right? In terms of an investment, uh, is it a controlling stake? What about if he had a minority stake in this company? Then do you still like basically call for this guy to have to divest that if he wants to, because you're being an owner in the NBA. By the way, he doesn't have to like stop being an owner in the NBA, but that's my, a little bit of my, where I beat the thing becomes a very gray area very quickly. But I do understand where that's coming from. I actually put in more in line to what we saw quite a bit from a number of firms getting called out based on them having a public social stand of supporting Black Lives Matter, but then privately not operating in that, in that manner. So wording it out. I already said it. I put Your courage. courage. Yeah, yeah. I said it earlier. Your courage. Okay, sorry. I, I rambled for so long that you- I forgot. You missed that. I, you confused me out of uh, the wow. knowledge of what you said. Okay. Um, <laughs> This one may surprise you, but I actually, I, I um, also put it in the courage category. Here's why. I like the fact that people punch above their weight. You know, I like the, the so I checked out this Worth Rises, super small little outfit, okay, and a bit fringe. And I want to be clear, I agree with at least what I researched of, of them, literally nothing of what they agree, that they say, okay? So... <laughs> We want, but you respect the move that they made. I respect the move. I respect the move. <laughs> like right. That. So they they want to abolish police. Abolish, not defund. Abolish police. They oh, want wow. to abolish prisons. Mm-hmm. Right. They do have, you know, again, as a stated purpose, the understanding that like the prison systems are ones that are predatory and they exact resources from public coffers and communities. And I get all that. And probably a lot of that is actually true. But their stated objective to abolish police, prisons, et cetera, and the way that they, I completely disagree with. But nevertheless, I like their game. I like when people that are small kind of stand up to like rich, powerful people. Like, so I, I like that general kind of idea. Now, the idea of like what they're actually asking to happen, they're going to the NBA and saying, hey, force this guy who's an independent business guy who's got investments everywhere to just like get rid of this team. It's a bit naive. It's a bit like kind of, you know, pissing in the wind kind of thing, but like it makes noise and it gets people to take action. I don't think judging from the response, which I also read the one you already quoted from the guy from Platinum Equity, that anything is going to happen. In fact, these guys actually say that um, they say Worth Rises has been invited to join in the collaboration, but is declined in favor of shouting from an isolated fringe. So they've already painted these guys as kind of fringe activists. And maybe they are. You know what I mean? So I don't think anything is going to happen. And even the NBA also went on to say, it's like, they say, hey, we understand Worth Rise's passion for prison reform. We've been in regular communication with Tom Gores regarding their concerns. Mr. Gores has ongoing discussions with a number of nonprofits focused on similar reform. What a total just BS kind of like, listen, kid, nothing is going to happen. Okay. You can't fight City Hall. Take your ball and go home. That's what this says. And I realize nothing is really going to happen, but I got to give these guys some credit for actually taking out the ad and, and like punching above their weight and showing these kind of rich guys like what it's about. And, you know, so I, I give it, I on that basis, I give it um, a kind of courage rating. Yeah. I, I think the yeah. only thing about nothing's going to happen. I have one more point, but go ahead. Uh, no, 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 no. Go ahead, go ahead. What was interesting is when I was reading on the story, I think it was Yahoo Sports who was covering this. Um, they talked about that Gores actually stepped down from his position on the board of the Los Angeles County uh, Museum of Art, uh, LACMA, right, uh, two months ago, given his ties to the company and the national reckoning with criminal justice reform. So 
in that case, a little bit different, right, in terms of a board position versus an ownership position of a, of a team. But it sounds like this is a, an area where he's already getting pressure, and there's already been some change where he's been asked to step down in, in some case. That's fine, but it's cosmetic is what I mean. For this for this guy to give up his personal profit, this no, is a guy who's – he's not, Well, I, I don't – first of all, like there's no scenario where I see him getting pushed out of being an NBA owner because of this. Yeah. None. That's what I mean. The, having like, said that, the Detroit Pistons is what the that, ask is. If players get involved in this issue sure. and start making a, making a stink, sure. I think they could put real pressure on him to divest that investment. Not the team. The Sacrist. I think well, he, will, he will dump by the that way, investment I even, much faster before he even thinks about it. moving away from And I haven't team. even talked about Sacrist. I think from what I've done the research on, like what the hell is what the hell even is this company, right? Basically charging $15 to talk for 15 minutes because you're on a prison phone. They're just, yeah, they're, just, they're, just, they're, they're the telecom that does the, the actual uh, communication for, for prison. Right, but like prisons. whose cousin do you need to be to get this kind of gig? Like, I mean, it's like, it just seems so shady, this whole idea of like, oh yeah, we're the phone company of prison inmates and we can charge whatever the hell we want. There's no competition. It just seems yeah, completely messed up. Yeah, I don't know enough of it, but I, I do think that if, if this then sparks for players to get involved in this conversation, the Troy Piston players, I think that could be that could be problematic for him. Okay. All right. I, I understand that. But I, in any case, it doesn't sort of, my perspective is I, I give it, you know, courageous. The, what, the last point that I was going to make was mm-hmm. just for fun. I went and checked out Platinum Equities um, website, and everyone should do this. It's amazing. Remember that we were talking about the Instagram handle, where you could like, you could determine the brand's whiteness, right? You know what I mean by terms of its equity. How translucent it was. I literally, I have you, you look at it on the Google Doc because I actually put the doc. <laughs> I put the picture in here. It looks like it's like fifty. It looks like the Norwegian men's rowing team. You know what I mean? It's like. <laughs> It's extraordinary. There's like 50 dudes. In- and look, I, again, I actually don't agree with judging people by the way that they look, but it's just comedy in terms right, of the right. like the, the look not to have in, in 2020 is what these guys actually have. Right. Do you see the picture that I'm talking about? I do. Yeah, I Scroll. see it. I see, well, just like, I, I see one Latino guy. He looks a little more tan. Great. One out uh, of 50. All right. Love yeah, it. Yeah, maybe two. Maybe two. This is more than 50 people. But yeah, no, it's, it's actually pretty interesting. It's pretty so, funny. So my point is that, you know, these guys are, um, I, I see what they named, why they named it Platinum Equity because everybody's white. <laughs> uh, so look, again, I, um, I, I'm not, I don't agree with anything that these uh, Worth Rises people seem to believe, but um, I do under, I do believe that there's some corruption in, in terms of the prison system and the people who take it, who, uh, who are kind of vendors to that because they have no competition and they can do whatever right. the hell they want. And I do like the whole pump, punching above the belt. So I give the, I give this story a courage and maybe surprisingly so. Okay. It was a strong move to put to put the full page out in New York Times. Oh, for sure. Strong for sure. move. And by the way, like even though print is like dead and all this other stuff, but still put it's it the very pr- symbolic. It's like man. it's symbolic. Yeah, it yeah. is symbolism. I love it. All right. <laughs> Last. Last one. This will be a doozy, a fun one. Um so there's been uh Republican lawmakers who basically um downplay coronavirus at some point, mm-hmm. whether it's restrictions, concerns overall, are now facing some backlash. Wait, are we betting a thousand? We are, yeah. Which is, we're about to ruin it. I don't think we've ever done that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, who knows? Who knows? Maybe we'll, we'll we'll see. We'll see how this plays out. Uh, right. So they are uh, sorry. Republican lawmakers who downplay coronavirus concerns are facing some backlash over mm-hmm. some early vaccinations, right? So, just to give you a little more more background there. So, with some, of course, with only limited uh, doses available across the U.S., right? And the two ones are Moderna and Pfizer. Um, members of Congress have been prioritized for inoculation in an effort to maintain governmental continuity on Capitol Hill. So it makes sense, right? You want to make sure that the folks that are responsible literally for the government to stay open, 
that are get the vaccine early on so that they're able to do do their jobs, right? But who who made that? Like, who's the authority that says that? Like, I, I'm assuming it's the CDC. I actually don't know who specifically. Like somebody uh, says we that. should yeah. inoculate the government well, people was, because you know what? I do know this. I, I just I'm blanking who it is. But there was, if you recall, as part of the process for rolling out the vaccine, there was a, a sit down. I'm, I'm blanking on who was the the actual right. body. I'm just decision. curious about who the authority. Yeah, is but they, that. but that's where they decided what was going to be the order of priority <laughs> of who got vaccinated, right? Yeah. So when you think about people that. 65 plus 65 plus and also people that are in um, um, like in the medical profession right, right. so, so um, uh, it was basically in that, in that kind of order uh, which I guess it included also people that are in, in Congress right mm-hmm. so I get that um, but some basically some GOP lawmakers who have been who have publicized their shots um, something public uh, health, ex- health experts by the way have recommended to advertise the vaccine safety right because of course there have been a lot of question marks about the vaccine whether it's safe to take etc so having these very public sort of support of them taking the shots thing, you know, helps that case are, are not facing, you know, a lot of fierce disapproval on social for basically giving their past comments as a downplaying or misrepresenting the virus early this year. Right. So as an example of that, Iowa Senator Joni Ernst, uh, who tweeted Sunday that she had received the first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine uh, at the recommendation of the Office of the Attending Physician. Um, she basically her early vaccination basically immediately got, got a pushback. With many people pointing out to the comments that she had made in September during her successful re-election campaign, suggesting that healthcare workers were inflating COVID-19 death numbers for profit, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, similar to that, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, uh, also, of course, a close ally to President Donald Trump, also got you know pushback as well uh, in terms of, of, of people calling out because of some of the positions that he took in line to, to the president as, in terms of downplaying some of the coronavirus and now getting vaccinated. Which is, by the way, in contrast to other rep- uh, representatives, like, for example, Hawaii Democratic Representative Tulsi Gabbard, who she tweeted early Monday. She said, I, I have plans to get the vaccine, but will now stand in solidarity with our seniors by not doing so until they can. I urge my colleagues who are under 65 and healthy to join me. Right. So she joins Representative Brian Mast, a, a Florida Republican, yeah, cool. Ian Omar, a Minnesota Democrat and, um, and Republican-elect Nancy Mace, a South Carolina Republican. All who are saying that they're going to wait to get vaccinated until other essential Americans have have access. Sure. Um, and then lastly, will be is that in terms of some of the other high profile names that have been already vaccinated, you have folks like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, AOC, right? AOC. You have uh, Nancy Pelosi, the House uh, House Speaker, mm-hmm. and uh, and Senate Majority uh, Leader Mitch McConnell, right? All of which have received their vaccines. And have also advertised the fact that- Has she that got they, any pushback on that AOC from getting the vaccine relative to the same thing that Tulsi Gabbard is saying? Like, I mean, she's like 20 years old. I mean, yeah, what does she need it for? She's got like a 0. .00000 chance of dying I, from it. But I think in this case, so this is, I think, part of the first sort of question, right, that I have as it relates to right. how I view this, right? On the one hand, I could see someone like AOC saying, hey, AOC, you're whatever, she's like 30 years old. So she's, right? she's doing it to show of, it safe or whatever. Yeah, the likelihood of you getting sick right now probably you know getting sick but actually like having a, a, a deadly outcome is probably fairly low yeah having said that you know as you know there's been a lot of of, of mistrust uh especially among black and brown people as it relates to the vaccine having someone like an aoc who is one of the few latinas in congress or in in the, in the house in this case um i think also matters is having someone like her get the vaccine even though she is young to help give people confidence especially the people that she represents that this is a safe thing to do. By the and way, that's, that's another show we got to do at some point is like the distrust that exists around black and brown communities to the vaccine. Yeah. That's well, a very, and there's a history there. Is it related to the is. medical profession in of general, right? So the, I've seen a lot in terms of African-American representatives and different folks basically trying to do this to actually mm-hmm. show people that that is safe to take. 
and this is basically what the struggle is. So, any case, um, I, I covered a lot there. I went last time. Why don't you go this first? So, I, and, and to be clear, we're basically um, what we're judging is the law, the Republican lawmakers who downplayed Corona concerns, according to the headline, which I right. kind of disagree with the characterization, but whatever. Sure. Who downplayed the coronavirus concern, facing backlash about their vaccinations. And for me, on this, it is a cringe. Um, fundamentally, because I actually don't see the difference or I don't understand why bringing up um, a concern about the way that the coronavirus restrictions have been handled or concerns about the way that the economic incentives have been set up in some cases uh, for COVID-related diagnoses means that how that correlates directly with I somehow don't want to take the vaccine or I'm anti-vaccine. I think those are very different things. And I think somebody saying, you know, hey, um, like, for instance, I, I, I kind of cite two things specifically. The fact that um, additional fees are being paid for or, or being supplied by Medicare and Medicaid for COVID. Um, um, what do you call it? COVID. Deaths. Not deaths, but uh, what do you call it? Diagnoses. Okay. So that has been fact-checked, I actually put a link in our document from the USA Today, been fact-checked by like every fact-checking organization and be found to basically be true. Now, that doesn't mean that there's been fraud in that, but it does mean- Which is what was implied in in some cases. Which is what was implied, but it does mean that if you have a COVID case, you get more federal money than if it's not COVID. That's actually true. And for somebody to say like, hey, maybe that welcomes bad behavior. For somebody to say that and then get trolled for taking the vaccine, to me, it's like, you know, it's apples and oranges. I don't think it relates. I can have a concern about some of this stuff and still believe that I should take the vaccine. You know what I mean? So like, I, I just don't understand why it's an automatic that if I had a, an issue with how with COVID restrictions or with the way that the economic incentives or whatever were set up, that therefore, when I take the vaccine, I'm going to get trolled because somehow I didn't believe in the, the disease. Those are two different things. Now, if I had said, look, this thing is a hoax, there is no COVID. Um, it's not real or whatever it is. I can understand that then. Right. But the criticism, at least of, of Joni Ernst, and maybe there's other people, to me does not follow that therefore you would say, oh, you can't get your vaccine now because you were critical about this other stuff. That's, I mean, that's how I see it with this stuff. Okay. Um, so in this case, I think, by the way, I think it's cringe. So what? We're, what? We're, we're actually going to hit a thousand, right? This is the I first time ever. I think it's we have cringe, to ring a bell. but we have different points of view as to why we think it's cringe, right? So I, I, I will say I think it's cringe because I disagree with people now shaming, uh, especially Republican leadership in taking the vaccine, because frankly, I think we need more Republican leadership taking the vaccine to show that A, this is serious, B, you should take it, three, is safe, like all of the reasons why if there's people that are out there currently debating whether or not I should take a vaccine, I would rather have people that are that are representative more of that group, that people can relate to that group, take it as a way to give them comfort that, yes, it's okay for you to do because I'm doing it as well. I think that's more important than using this moment as a way to throw it on people's faces for those that did question, that those that said things that in the, in the, in the past created more question marks or were in many, many times associated part of a bigger 
sort of narrative that was supported many times by Republican leadership, and especially folks like President Trump, or where it just constantly created questions about the validity, the seriousness, how big of an issue this actually was. And I think this is what just happened. You have a lot of people that are being like petty and saying, now see, oh, well, no, now, you, no, now you want to take it? Really? What happened with the whole thing? Like, oh, not such a big deal. What happened with the whole thing? Like, oh, they're just inflating the numbers. And while I actually draw a much cleaner direct line correlation as to why someone will feel anger from from that at the right. same time i think the bigger benefit the bigger the bigger the more important thing now would be for for these folks by the way i would love to see president trump come out and say hey i'm taking the vaccine i feel it's safe by the way i was a big fan of doing this to begin with well, you pence, should you, you should as well pence did that's right i would love to see president trump do that yeah despite the fact Although that he, has, he, he got coronavirus does that does he yeah. does he have to still take it like i don't actually know uh, yeah i don't i don't works. know i think i that i don't know yeah. right but I would say, regardless, it would be a good thing for him to do it. I think that would actually help a lot of his supporters who, frankly, believe, believe him and no one else be more on board taking this vaccine. Even if I very strongly believe that he, by his words, not his actions many times, but I think his actions and what policy were versus his, his, his words were many times contradictory. I think because of his words, he tried to underplay, underplay it plenty of times, but I think it's more valuable to have him do that now. Which is really weird, the messaging that it, that it actually uh, does. But it's really weird. This is a separate point because I agree with everything you just said, but I just want to address one no, point. Don't mess that up, Charlie. No, we're, no, no, we're at no, a thousand. No, no. I'm going to no, change no, no. my just, position I, right I, now. I just want to address the one thing about Trump. It's it's bizarre that that... Like he should take the vaccine to prove that he thinks it's serious when he's been talking about having the vaccine all year and people have been calling him a retard for doing that. Like it's like you're never going to get the vaccine. Yeah, but the, but never- the reason why, right? Because the 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 way anyone outside of people that maybe directly support him is that the only reason he was talking about, about that mm-hmm. was because he thought that would benefit his political outcome, period. Like there is a the director like me 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 and if it's only me and if it's not other than me. But I'm then saying, but but, but his saying? political outcome is driven by the people who actually vote for him and believe in him. So like, why would that be a driver for them? Well, but that's the kind of the crazy thing about it, right? Because you, you, on the one hand, you're saying, I mean, this is a, the whole issue that I can understand with the way that he handled coronavirus mm-hmm. is that. You can't tell me that it's just going to disappear and go away. You can't tell me that it's just the same thing as, as, the, as the flu. Mm-hmm. And yet, spend all this time, energy, and effort of getting this vaccine to market as quickly as possible. Spend billions of dollars in buying vaccines that you may never use. They may never work yeah. if it wasn't actually serious. So that's where his, his words and his actions like literally contradict each other. Yeah, and I understand that. But, but, but equally is the cognitive dissonance of saying like he should take the virus he should take the vaccine to show his people that he cares about it when all he's been talking about all year is getting the vaccine that to me is also cognitive cognitive dissonance he's been talking about it and not getting any kind of like in fact being ridiculed for talking about it and now we're saying he should take it to show people that he's serious about it like that part to me doesn't kind of compute. Uh, yeah, I, I just think when you look at the volume of times that he maybe talked about not wearing a mask, and then times about this vaccine would be really important. I would love to see a social graph of that, of like the times message, and and like obviously from I have a jaded view here, and I'll be the first to admit it. Yeah. Is my guess is going to be is that the not wearing a mask is going to be significantly higher, or open up, well, let's open up the economy significantly higher in terms of yeah. frequency and, and, and usage of those words versus versus importance. And that's the thing is like I mean I think back to your initial point about the things you've learned about not looking things through a political lens, and it is possible for things to be simultaneously true. It is possible mm-hmm. for things to be like I think you know you should open up the economy, and I think that this is a real virus. Like those things can simultaneously be true, potentially. Yeah, yeah they can. I think it, it gets into the how, right? Right. 
yeah, the execution of the it execution is, is actually yeah, yeah, yeah. important. It's, it's like when it's, it's like it's when it's a binary conversation is the problem, where it's either everything shut down or everything open. Yeah, right? maybe yeah, maybe the reality like those things are both true. Then there has to be more nuance to how, how to do it. All right, so this may be our first ever, maybe last. <laughs> <laughs> First and last ever, uh, 100% agreement on courage or cringe for very different reasons. But it doesn't matter. We're, we're, we're on the record on the exact same way. So that's good. That's a memorable last way to- Last another year. There you go. It's a memorable way to, uh, to end the year. All right, Jesus, uh, an hour and plus in. Any other words of wisdom? Not word of, words of wisdom. I would say is actually, you know, is a really heartfelt thank you to, I think to, to every, anyone that has listened to this, that has been uh, that has given us Amen. feedback. That is, yeah. uh, you know, uh, shared it with friends. You know, we've had a lot of people that have reached out to us, um, telling us about the about the show, and 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 not only about the show, but the fact that they appreciate how much we disagree with each other. Which is kind of crazy. The fact that that's like a novel thing that people could actually disagree with each other, work together, be friends, and and still be okay with it. But it, it it's, it's something that we felt was was missing. We didn't see enough of that, and I, I've I've loved now seeing sort of that sort of uh, mindset or that idea get validated in many ways by actually hearing that feedback directly from folks. So it's not really a, a parting thought, but more of a, of a thank you for for those that have been part of this journey with us and that has basically put up with as we learn through this process and hopefully get better as we as we deliver this content. Yeah, I, I think I have to echo that and give a, a hearty thanks, um, obviously to you for being a partner on this podcast. It's been an incredible journey. Uh, 2020 has been an incredible thing. And I, I, I really give you, um, you know, great credit for developing this and, and kind of getting it to the point where it is. And um, I also too have been very edified by the feedback that we've gotten on this podcast. And I think that like 2021 hopefully can be an opportunity for many more of these kind of exchanges, not just for us, but maybe other forums where people can actually have a variety of nuanced discussions. I think we need that as a culture. I think we do need to go back to those 9-11 days of pulling together and like, hey, we're all in this together. You know, we may yeah. disagree about things, but like, guess what? People disagree about stuff. That's okay. It's okay. Yeah. Um, but what are the things that we have in common? What are the things that we share? How can we actually draw together? And I think that that has been a very, very positive thing. It's been a real pr- pleasure and a privilege to be able to kind of do this for 2020. And I definitely echo, um, you know, your thoughts in terms of thanking the folks who have listened and provided feedback, especially. And I look forward to 2021. I really, really do. Me I too. hope that there's uh, more things to come. So, um, all right. Charlie, it's a wrap. It's a wrap. 2020. That's it. That's all we've got. So uh, we'll see you guys in 2021 on another episode of TDR. If you enjoyed this episode of the Diversity Remix, please remember, first of all, to subscribe and help us to spread the word. Tell your friends, family, coworkers, and give us a five-star review. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez with production services by Jose Manuel Durquidi and Luis Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Network. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown.
With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.